Yeah, we're in Deuteronomy. Anybody remember what Deuteronomy means? Very good, Charles. The second giving of the law. So Moses has already given the law before in the book of Exodus, and he elaborated on it in the book of Leviticus. But here he kind of gives it again, and he's doing this as a sermon. Several books of the Bible take, you know, are, are actually written over a span of like hundreds of years, like Genesis. Some are written over a certain number of weeks or months, but Deuteronomy is actually given in a couple of days. It's one long sermon by Moses. And some of you may think my sermons are long. Mine aren't 32 chapters long, okay? But he, he gives this long sermon, and basically what he's doing is he's telling the children of Israel, hey, you're about to go into the promised land. Don't forget what I've taught you. And so let me summarize everything I've taught you. And so that's what we're doing with the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. It's a summary of everything that Moses had already taught the people from God and given to them. And there's a lot of unusual stuff in there. But it is given to a people who are, about, who are going into war because they're going to have to fight for the promised land. So a lot of these regulations are for wartime things. Now, I don't think anybody in this room is old enough to remember, other than Lauren, uh, that uh, when, when they used to ration sugar. Remember World War II? I just like to pick on you, Lauren. Remember, in World War II, you could only buy so much sugar. And they're like, no, that's all. No more. And you, you could only use certain things. They had to, the government had to ration things. And our country lived under a lot of unusual rules at that time. Because why? They were at war. So when you read unusual rules in the book of Deuteronomy, put it in context. These are, again, for a group of people where it's written just for them and not for everybody else in the world, okay? There are principles that are eternal, but the, the actual details of the law don't apply generationally in the future, especially to us. So um, I, will, I will mention that this is a PG-13 message again, just because, not because I'm going to make it that way, just because of the context. So if you have kids that are fifth and sixth grade and younger, they want to go to the classroom to the side, they certainly can do that. Normally, I have someone read the scripture with me, but this morning someone's, so asking someone to read this would be really hard on them, so I'm going to do this myself, okay? Because there's some really bizarre stuff in this chapter, as you will see. Verse 1, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter into the assembly of God and the assembly of the Lord. And that's the way we start off Sunday morning. Okay. <laughs> wow. This is bizarre. By the way, any of you read, read ahead? You read this already? Okay. You, you were prepared. You were like, you know why I was talking about blushing. Okay. I'm probably already read already. And then, no one born of forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, some of you are already going, man, I know the Bible's weird. This is just more proof that the Bible's weird. Okay. But remember what we said earlier, keep your parachute open. Okay. Number three, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. And let me just tell you ahead of time, the assembly of the Lord is not talking about going into the temple or the tabernacle or like that. It's talking about the nation being a citizen, okay? They were called the assembly in the wilderness. That was a nation, a group of people. So it means you can't become a citizen if these things apply. Anyway, even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Verse 4 says, because they did not meet you in the meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. 
But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. When you are encamped against your enemies, in other words, about to go to war, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If, every, if any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But when the evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall, and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover, it, cover up your excrement. Told you this was weird. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That is the Lord, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, sorry, yeah, but if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes and as many as you wish, but you shall not put anything any in a bag, in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Even as bizarre as it is, it's God's word, and it's there for a reason. We're going to talk about that. So Israel is about to go into the promised land, and this is the path they're going to take, that red line going north, out of Egypt, heading north. And you can see all the different Canaanite tribes that are there, the Jebusites, the Kenites, uh, the Hivites, etc. And one by one, each one of these seven, they're going to destroy they're going to destroy them for two reasons. One, this is God's promised land for Israel, not them. But also God's going to destroy them, have them destroy them because these nations are incredibly wicked. If you've been here in the weeks past, 
uh, you, you can recall some of the things they did. They gave their daughters and their wives over as cult prostitutes. They sacrificed newborn babies on a burning altar. They were doing all kinds of, the worst things you can imagine they were doing in this, in this nation. And God had called them to repent even similar situations like Jonah going to Nineveh, asking them to repent. There were similar situations like this here. They would not repent. They kept abusing and killing people left and right. And so God was going to use this as judgment upon them. And it's interesting, though, that Satan knew that God was going to put them in his promised land. So what did he do? He put seven tribes in there himself, wicked tribes. And let me just say this as a lesson to all of you. If you pray for something, be prepared that Satan is going to answer that prayer request before God does. Guaranteed. You pray for a job, Satan's going to come on. Someone's going to say, hey, so-and-so is hiring. You have to work on Sundays. But so-and-so is hiring. It's great pay. And you're like, oh, man. You know? Or you may have to do something unethical in that job, but you're like, oh, but I need the money. Or you may be praying for a wife or for a husband. And I guarantee you, some loser's going to come along before Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright comes along. Guarantee you. So don't, don't always just jump on the first thing that comes. Oh, God already answered my prayers. Man, Satan likes to beat God to the punch. God is seldom early, but never late. In fact, God does the opposite usually. Why does the Bible say over and over again, wait on the Lord? Because he wants you to pray and pray and pray some more. But usually if something comes along really quick, just be cautious. Doesn't mean God can't answer it quick, but that's not usually his motive. And that's not usually the way he operates, Okay. And so Satan filled this land, and it's interesting that with seven tribes, in other words, it was full of complete wickedness. That's what the number seven means in the Bible. It's completely, the land was completely wicked, and they were supposed to completely drive it out. At the beginning, you see a chiastic structure there, which is, again, for those of you who knew, this is the way the, the Hebrews wrote, that they started with a the topic, they built into the main message, and then they worked their way back out and ended the way they started. So this passage begins with people who are excluded for ten generations— it ends with people that are included. So let's talk about who gets in and who gets out. Then the next thing is he talks about enemies that are excluded forever and then talks about avoiding those enemies forever. But what's at the middle? How God takes the curse of Balaam and turns it into a blessing. That's the main point of the beginning of the passage. So it says here in verse 1, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Wow, bizarre, right? Okay. What is this talking about? Well, there's, there's two things, and one or both are possibly true. In fact, I'm, I believe both are true. You see several things in Leviticus where a ma- two men get in a fight, and the wife intervenes, and what does she do? <laughs> she may kick him or do something in the, in the, in the, in the, the what's the word I should use, Patrick? Here, help me out. <laughs> in, the, in the groin, just in the, in the painful area, okay? And that... This was a matter of survival back then. That was, I guess, a technique that maybe dads taught to the girl. If a guy ever messes with you, you know where to hit him or you know where to crush him or whatever it may be. And so there's a scenario. In fact, the Bible talks about this five times. So obviously it's somewhat important. And it's saying if you've been damaged in that way, you, don't go, you can't become a citizen. Why? Because the citizenship was all about producing a Messiah. And so therefore, there was no supposed, not supposed to be any defect in the Messiah. It was all about reproducing a Messiah and his lineage. But the more likely thing is, and let me just give you a little hint. Whenever you're reading through Leviticus or Deuteronomy and you come across something weird, it's probably cautioning against a pagan practice. In other words, remember it says you don't, you don't boil a calf in its mother's milk? Weird. Well, that's because that's what the pagans were doing. 
If you wanted to sacrifice a child, but you didn't have a child to sacrifice, you, you bathed, you boiled a calf in its mother's milk. That's what the pagans did. And, and God's saying, don't do that. So if something seems bizarre, blame it on Satan, not God. God just, he's just saying, hey, don't do what Satan has these people doing these weird things, okay? And the second thing though, and this is the more predominant one, is many people were so caught up in this cult prostitute thing is that they were like maiming themselves. They were cutting their genitals so they could be dedicated totally to Balaam or Dagon or one of these pagan gods. And so that's what was going on. And God's saying, you're not going to do that. In fact, um, Baal, here's Baal on your left. He's the bullheaded God. And he was, the, he was a God that was all about sex, basically. And what was weird is his lover, who was also his mother, Asheroth, she's on the other side. And so these pagans were so caught up in sex and sexuality that many of them were changing their genitals to be part of this cult practice. Um, does that sound a little bit familiar? Today, the idol gods of counterfeit sexuality and sexual pleasure still today are calling for the mutilation of genitals by their followers. Nothing new under the sun. I'll just leave that there. Verse two, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. A forbidden union was you cannot marry someone who doesn't believe in Jehovah God. You don't marry these foreigners. Now, notice it doesn't say you can't marry foreigners. Some people, and you don't see this much in it today, but old school preachers would actually use these texts of saying no interracial marriage. And that's just ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. It means if someone foreign believes in a foreign God, you don't marry them. But how many marriages are in the Bible that God says, yay, that's great because they converted to the true and living God. What's interesting is in World War II, Hitler tried to get his scientists to nail down what is a Jew? How do we genetically know what a Jew is? And they couldn't figure it out because a Jew all throughout history was anybody who identified with Jehovah. It wasn't a race, and I don't even like to use the word race because there's only one race, the human race. It wasn't an ethnos, as the Bible says, an ethnicity. It was a belief. So you had black Jews and Asian Jews and, and white Jews and European, all different colors of Jews, and they couldn't nail it down. It was only by what they believed in. Now, there is a certain predominance of ethnicity among Jews uh, that came out of the 12 tribes, but because so many different people converted to Judaism, it was very mixed in, in, in many, many ways. And when it talks again about the assembly of the Lord, it's talking about becoming a citizen. It's not saying they can't worship or anything like that. Some people interpret it that way, but if you read several other passages in the way this is used, it talks about the assembly of the wilderness. It's talking about the, the people of God, the nation that God called out of Egypt. And, and here's what's so interesting. It says that these people, if you marry someone who's a pagan, they don't believe in God, your ancestors cannot become a citizen for 10 generations. Now, some people look at that and say, that's just hyperbole meaning forever. In fact, they even say in one of the other verses, it talks about to the 10th generation and forever. So they're saying there, it says right there. But that's not even, that's not even close to accurate. When, when the Bible says forever, it means, it could mean, we use forever as an infinite to the end of time. When the Bible most of the time, not all the time, uses forever, it means forever, not at any time in this context. In other words, if, I, if I'm talking about a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, and then I say, so nobody's going to die during the millennium forever in the millennium. I mean, absolutely during that time. And so that's the only way that this could even be consistent. What's fascinating about this is watch what happens. It says, no Ammonite or Moabite. 
Where did these two tribes come from? Anybody know? Lot. Okay. Lot's daughters thought when they came out of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah was such a self-centered civilization that they thought they were the only ones. They literally, when they came out of Sodom and Gomorrah, I believe that Lot's two daughters thought that the whole world had blown up and they were the only three human beings on the planet. And that doesn't justify what they did, but what they did is they got their father drunk and they had incestuous relationship with them so they could have sons to carry on the humanity or at least to carry on their own posterity. So Ammonite was the old, was the, was the tribe that came from Lot's older daughter. The Moabite was the one that came from Lot's younger daughter. But watch this. They're not excluded because of the incest, although that's a big problem. Watch what it says here. It says, even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Now, Moses isn't that stupid that he contradicted himself in the same eight words. The forever is within the context of 10 generations. So as they're passing through the land, the Ammonites are on the right. Notice that there's the, there's the Jordan River right down the middle. The, the land of Canaan that they're conquering is to the, that, that one side of the river. The Ammonites are on the other side, okay? And so he's saying, you know, those people, they may come in and they may convert, but they cannot join until 10 generations as far as citizenship. And then there, you see below that, south of that, the Moabites, okay? And they're both on that side. And these are not people they're going to destroy, okay? They're relatives, Okay, but they're not worshiping God properly, so they're not going to be, but they're not going to be destroyed. And here's why. It wasn't because of the incest, although that was not a great thing. Because they did not meet you with bread and water. As they were passing through the promised land, they went to the king of Ammon and and the king of Moabites, and they said, hey, we're just passing through, but we need to, we need some food. We'll buy it from you. In fact, we'll pay you a great price because they had just spoiled the Egyptians. They went door to door in Egypt and said, hey, we're leaving. Can we have some cash? Yes, please go, 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 go. And they gave them gold and silver and everything. And they, the, the, the Israelites walked through the wilderness loaded. And they were prepared to pay them for And they're like, no, we're not feeding you. Get out of here. And God says, because of that, you can't become citizens for 10 generations. They say, gosh, Gary, that doesn't seem fair. Let me tell you something. There's consequences for your decisions. Okay? There are consequences that you will make, decisions you will make that will have consequences for your kids, your grandkids, even your great-grandkids. I mean, you look at, even in America, consequences of racism or consequences of injustice that people are still paying for today, even though that's ancient history. It still has a way of, of lingering its ugly head throughout all kinds of places in civilization. And it says that because they, all, here's the second reason, because they hired against you Balaam. Balaam was a warlock, okay? He he talked to gods and he prayed prayers and did blessings and cursings, okay? And they came to Balaam and said, hey, we want you, we're not only gonna not feed these people, we want you to curse them so they die. So Balaam gets on his donkey and he goes down to curse them and God says, you're not cursing my people. In fact, you're gonna do the opposite. I'm gonna make you bless my people. And he's like, okay, whatever you say, God. So he blesses the people and then they, they're like, wait, what? so what happened? Man, when I got there, God told me I couldn't do that. Well, we paid you to curse them. So he says, okay, no, here, we'll pay you again, go curse him. Three times he went down. The third time he's like, I'm determined that I'm going to do this and I'm going I'm to curse him. And that's when, you know, God spoke to him through his donkey and all that stuff. But it says, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing. What they, they paid him to do a curse and God, by the time he got there, God said, no, you're going to bless them. And so here we have in the Bible the first talking donkey, way before Shrek, okay? And this donkey is talking. He, that Balaam's going down the path 
and it's a narrow path and the donkey doesn't want to go because the donkey sees this angel. And it wasn't one of those little naked baby angels. No donkey would be scared of that. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach naked baby angels, okay? Throw those in the trash, break them, crush them, whatever you got to do. Every time the Bible talks about an angel, it is something fierce and mighty that people are like, whoa, man, we're going to die. This guy's going to kill us, you know? And usually they would have a sword. Well, the donkey sees this, but Balaam doesn't. So the donkey starts like kicking and, ru- and going all kinds of places and even bangs him up against the wall. So he starts beating the donkey with this, with this uh, big stick, okay? And that's when the donkey talks to him and says, hey, what are you beating me for? Have I not been faithful to, to you know, carry you all over the countryside all these years? You know, and that's when God allowed him to see the angel and all that stuff. And you say, Gary, do you really want me to believe that a donkey talked? Yeah, I do. And, and it's not me that wants you to believe that. I really believe that God puts all kinds of crazy, in fact, foolish things in the Bible. And in Romans chapter 1 tells us to humble you. Because if you are really smart and you got a PhD, it's going to take a lot of humility to say, yeah, I actually believe that donkeys talked in the Bible. And your friends will make fun of you. But God's saying, hey, if I can create the world in six days, I can make a donkey talk. If I can flood the whole world in 40 days, I can make animals come two by two into the ark. You say, man, only little kids would believe that. Bingo. What did Jesus say? You got to become like a little child. Kids are like, yeah, sure, I believe in that. And, and that can be a bad thing that people take advantage of and teach them all kinds of crazy stuff. But you want your kids to believe you. Like we say, honey, don't touch this right here. This could make you really sick. You want your kid to believe you, right? Do they understand all the science of why this poison would kill them? No. They've got to trust you with childlike faith. And Jesus took a little child, put it in his lap and said, unless you become like one of these, forget about heaven. And that's the problem with our world today. We are so smart. We're like, God can't do that. God can't do this. We want God to do big, amazing things like we do. God wouldn't do little things like make a donkey talk. God can do whatever he wants. Until you accept that, you'll never be saved. Because if you don't think God can do that, then you don't think God can run your life. And that's why many people say, oh, I want to go to heaven, so I'll pray this prayer and accept Jesus as my Savior. But they never accept him as their Lord. And the Bible says you can't separate the two. That he... If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. See, everybody wants to say, well, I believe so I can get saved. But they, they, don't, but they live like the devil because they had never made Jesus their Lord. That's why I explained so many people are in churches this morning not living for God. But they think they're saved on their way to heaven. And what does Matthew chapter 7 verse 24 says on that day, on judgment day, he'll say to them, they'll say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy and do many miracles and cast out demons? And Jesus says to them, depart from me. I never knew you because you never made me the Lord of your life. You wanted to get saved. And I'm not making fun of being saved, but people want to get saved only just so they won't go to hell. But they don't want to give their life. They want their eternity to be okay, but they want to hear now for themselves. And you can't separate the two. So no Ammonite or Moabite until the 10th generation. Now watch this. This is why. So watch this. Moses' sermon takes place somewhere around 1400 BC. And by the way, as a side note, for people who start doing this BCE thing and this CE thing, don't do that. That is just trying to wipe Jesus out of history. What does BC stand for? Before Christ. And people who are too smart for God want to say BCE, before the common era. 
what's the common error? What was in common? The only thing that was in common was Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. That's what's in common. So don't give into this BCE and CE stuff, okay? It's BC and AD. AD doesn't mean after death. A lot of people assume that means Anno Domine, which is Latin for the year of our Lord. All of history revolves around the fact that God became human being and lived on this planet. That's why we, we call this the year 2021 because approximately 2021 years ago, Jesus Christ came to this earth. Okay, don't let people change that on you. He, the, all of history still revolves around him. So anyway, watch this though. Deuteronomy, 1400 BC approximately. 10 generations later would be approximately 400 years later. The story of Ruth happened 400 years later, 1000 BC. And what was Ruth? A Moabite. Isn't that awesome? That's how we know that the forever doesn't mean forever the way we think. It means forever during this 10 generations, no Moabites are coming in at all. It just means at all. But God said, I'm going to bring the first Moabite in. She's going to marry Boaz, and she'll be the first citizen from these other tribes. Isn't that amazing that God just scripts all this stuff? He pr predicts this 400 years in advance. And if you don't think the Bible's true... You've got a lot of prophecies, over 350 of them, to, to, to explain away. How does the Bible predict 600 years before Jesus was born that he'd be born of a virgin? Where he'd be born, where he'd grow up, how he would die. That they would, before crucifixion was ever even invented, in 600 years before, it says they would put nails in his hands and in his feet, that they would pierce his side. I mean, David even said on, in Psalm 22 what Jesus would say on the cross word for word and who he would kill him. I mean, the Bible prophecies are amazing and that's why we need to teach this stuff because you can't refute the Bible and say it's a bunch of fairy tales. I, I guarantee you, if I said in the year 2055, the Houston Texans will win the Super Bowl, first of all, you'd think I'd be crazy, but if I said that, and I said that they will defeat a team that doesn't even exist yet, Let's just say the, the St. Louis Roughhousers or whatever. I make up this team. It doesn't even exist yet. And the score will be 32 to 14. If every one of those details becomes true, you guys say, wait a minute. How did he know that? And yet that, that right there is a very simplistic prediction that I could get lucky on. But the Bible does it over and over and over and over again. I could spend hours just talking about the prophecies in the Bible. This is just one of them. God says, no Moabite will enter, enter for 10 generations and it's exactly 10 generations later. Look at the genealogy. That's why there's genealogies in the Bible. So-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. And you're like, why is also in the Bible? Because it has to do with prophecy. Anyway, so Boaz redeemed her. He was a Jew. He redeemed her as his wife. Isn't God's word amazing? Man, I believe to this day that God's word is true. Every word of it is inspired by God. And the prophecies, not just to mention all the other things about the Bible, not just because it makes me feel good when I do my devotions, but because God is in control of all of history and he makes every little detail happen. Like who's going to be born where and who's going to marry who? He controls it all. He's totally in control. Isaiah 56 says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. It's talking about his Messiah, okay? And my righteousness will be revealed. Let not the foreigner... Who, Moabite or Ammonite, okay, who join himself to the Lord, the, say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. You know, God doesn't want me. God's going to kick me out. Don't, don't say that because Messiah's coming. He's going to fix all that. And let not the eunuch, the person who has castrated himself, say, behold, I'm a dry tree. Oh, I'll never have kids now. I've totally messed up. You know, you don't have to say that. Here's why. 
For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, if you obey me, you'll worship me on the Sabbath and you choose the things that please me and you'll hold fast to my covenant, what, watch what God says. I will give him in my house within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. See, the reason that Jews wanted to have kids is because they carried on the family name. That was a big deal. And God says, you know what? I'm going to write your name on the walls of heaven. You talk about a, a legacy. That's better than having a son or daughter. I'm going to accept you into my kingdom and you'll be a big part of my kingdom forever. And I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. God's using like play on words there. Okay. And then, uh, so, and then you fast forward to Acts chapter 8. Here's an Ethiopian eunuch. A guy who's been castrated. And most likely the reason he was castrated because he was high official. He was the, the um, secretary of finance. He ran the money for the whole country for Queen Candace. Okay. Well, he goes to Israel to worship. I don't know why. I don't know if he's a practicing Jew, but he's coming back to Israel to worship. I don't know if he's looking for God or seeing God. We know he's not saved, but he, he's a believer in God or wants to be a believer in God. And this is, a, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Philip is preaching to thousands of people. And in the middle of his sermon, God says, hey, Philip, I need you to leave. Philip's like, is that you, God? You know, and I, this is Gary paraphrase here. And, and he says, I need you to go out into the middle of the desert. And God like snaps him like Star Trek, zoom, and he beams along. He's like there. And he says, you see that chariot over there? Go join yourself to the chariot. So Philip's rolling alongside saying, hey, how's it going? <laughs> and, and the guy's reading Isaiah, and he's reading it out loud. And he's like, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He said, no, how can I unless some man show me? Man, that's a whole sermon in itself. We need to be showing people how to read the Bible. And he said, who's this guy talking about? It says, like a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. Um, let me just read it to you. Now, the passage of scripture you're reading was, like, was this, Isaiah chapter 53. Like a sheep was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So here's this guy that for 10 generations was going to be cut off, and yet God says, hey, come on into my kingdom. And he shared the gospel with him, saying, even if you've done this permanent damage to yourself, Oh, I didn't finish my thought earlier. The reason he would be a eunuch with Candace is because a queen would surround herself only with men who had been castrated because she was not going to be sexually assaulted by any of them. So that was part of the deal. Now, whether that was forced upon them or they chose it, we don't know. Some situations it was both. But here, this eunuch accepts Christ as his savior. And he says, hey, I, man, I was in Jerusalem and I saw thousands of people get baptized. And here's a pool of water over here. What's keeping me from being baptized? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you may which shows the prerequisite to baptism is believing the gospel, which is why Revolution Church does not baptize babies because they don't understand the gospel, okay? And I'm, I'm not saying there aren't churches who baptize babies that don't preach the gospel. I'm just saying on that issue, they're very wrong, okay? Because this makes it very clear. They both went down into the water. Why did they both have to go down in the water waist deep if he's just going to sprinkle them? And it makes it very clear, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And the next verse even goes on to say, and they both came up out of the water. Again, because baptism is a picture of the death of Christ. Jesus died for my sins. He was what? Buried, and he rose again. You can't picture that with this. You can't. If, if the water is a picture of the grave, then you do this to somebody, it's like throwing dirt at them. Seriously, or you're rubbing dirt on their forehead. 
How is that a picture of the the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's definitely not. But the beauty, let me get back to my point here. Even eunuchs, even though they were excluded back then, they're included because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Jesus died for everyone. And he says, but, but don't hate on the Edomite. He is your brother. Now, why is the Edomite their brother? Jacob and Esau, remember? Esau should have been the one with the birthright, but he sold it for a bowl of soup. So they switched places, and Esau became a punk for years after that. And his, his ancestors were called Edomites, okay? For he's your brother. He's still related to you, so don't hate on him. You shall not abhor or hate the Egyptian. Now, this is crazy. Where were, where, who was making them slaves? Egyptians. And he's saying, but don't hate them. Because look at this. You got to live in their land. Man, you talk about looking on the silver lining of the cloud. You, you got to live there. Don't hate on these people. Even though they mistreated. You talk, but this is not trying to be unlogical. This is reinforcing what Jesus says. You love your enemies. Even if all they did was feed you a little bit. You know, it, I think that's not stretching the scripture way too much there. Um, so you have the Edomites there. And of course the Egyptians are farther south. And these are people that are all around them, but they're not the seven that they're going to be conquering. So he says, you need to show kindness to these other people. And then notice this. He said, the children of the Edomites and the Egyptians, they can become citizens after the third generation. Now, what's the principle of this? Well, there's several things here. Number one, there's consequences for your behavior. So maybe you have to wait a while before you recover. Number two, though, I think it was a security issue. If people from surrounding nations like, hey, I want to become a citizen, I want to become a citizen... You're like, wait a minute, we're at wartime here. We're really cautious about who can become a citizen. You can't. You can live here, and your kids can live here, but we're going to give it some time, and your great-grandkids can become citizens. Okay, fair enough. If you were coming in to spy, or you were coming in to cause insurrection, and you got to wait two, two more generations, you're not going to do it. So I really believe it's a security issue. We do that the same thing in our own constitution. If you're not born in America, you can't become the president. So if you were born in Canada you know, our neighbors to the north, and you want to become president, and that we allowed you to do that, but then all of a sudden we had a dispute with Canada, are you objective? No, you're not. So your, your kid can become president. We don't even make you wait to the third generation, but here is the third generation to wait, I believe, for security reasons. So again, put this in context. When you're encamped against your enemies, in other words, you've got set up tents, you've drawn battle lines, you're ready to go to war, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. It's important at wartime to not mess around with sinful, foolish things. And guess what? We're still at war. It's a spiritual war. The United States isn't at war, thank the Lord, but we are at a spiritual war. For our citizenship is in heaven, and Satan has not stopped fighting against us. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in high places. So our warfare is against the spiritual world. So we don't need to mess around. Now, he says, if any man becomes unclean because, and unclean, there are several ways you can become unclean. If you came in contact with a dead person, let's say someone in your family died, you had to bury them. You don't, you don't go to synagogue that week, or at least not for several days. If, if ladies, if it was that time of the month, you didn't go to worship that time. There was a lot of things, and what, not all of them involved sin, okay? If you got some type of sickness, you stayed away. And a lot of this was quarantine also. The Bible knew about quarantine long before. And it says really a bizarre thing, and there's no way of getting around this. I studied and studied looking for another way to translate this, but there's no other way. Nocturnal emission, it means a certain type of dream, okay? And uh, if you don't know what dream I'm talking about, ask your mom later. I'm not explaining it. I've already embarrassed myself enough. Um, 
It's not saying it's sin, although, and that's a question you commonly get is, is this type of dream sin? I will say sin caused it, but it itself may not be sin. If you're filling your minds with all kinds of immoral thoughts during the day, and then this happens at night, then it was sin that caused this, okay? But then there's sometimes it happens, and it's, it's just a natural thing. And so, all right, I'm ready to talk about something else. Um, Anyway, but it just for hygiene purposes, go take a bath. In fact, in Leviticus, it says if a man and a woman together this happens, which because of relations, they should go take a bath. That's, that's good common sense afterwards. Um, but when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water. And when the sun sets, he may come back into camp. Again, I don't want to read too much into this, but I wonder if also, if, if this was something caused by sinful thoughts, that God said, you know what, just stay outside and think about this today. And when dinner time comes, then come back in. Okay? I don't know. That would be my personal application from it. Um, and it says, you shall have a place outside. And this is where the origin of the outhouse. Okay? Or really, it's probably not a structure, but it's a place. And everybody, meaning you specifically, have your place. And so everybody's in this city, which is basically shaped like a circle. When you have to go number two, you go outside, you go way out into the woods, and you have a place. You may mark that place with a, with a, a, a ribbon or something. Everybody knows that's your place. I'm not going there. My place is over here. And everybody had their place where they went. And, uh, and this was cleanliness. Now you say, Gary, this is really city, silly. But how many of you have been to other countries where it's just common to just go right there in the street? And it's gross. You know, when we went to Monterey, Mexico, we went to some of the hard places there. It was like nobody cared. And it's just like whatever. You just saw it there. And you even saw people squatting in the street and doing stuff. And when we went to Ghana, there were some places where people just did that. And it's just like that you would think that'd be common sense. But the reason it's common sense in America is because America, until recent history, really believed the Bible. We even practiced little things like this, which would just seem like simple sanitation. So you dig a hole, you turn back, and you cover it. And it's just common sense. All y'all have been camping, right? So if someone asks you, hey, how was church? They can tell me it was really crappy. Okay? All right. But you've been, ca you've been camping, right? And this is, this is, so it may sound awkward to read about this, but God's teaching them something that wasn't common sense. Most of the pagan world didn't do this. You just stepped in other people's stuff like, oh, how gross is that? Man, I'm ready to change subjects. I'm glad when this chapter... So the Bible prescribed all kinds of guidelines for sanitation hygiene thousands of years before any civilization or any scientist understood microorganisms and the spread of disease. This man here, Ignaz Semmelweis, uh, he it was in Europe, and um, it's actually escaping me which country. But anyway... In 1846, he noticed in the, in the hospital, the birthing hospital, um, there was two sections. And one section is where the medical students delivered the babies, and the other section is where the midwives delivered the babies. And amongst the midwives, only about 4% of the mothers died after childbirth. On the, on the, on the uh, medical students' side, where the doctors and the students were, one out of every six women were dying. 18% versus single digits over here. And this is the midwives, and these doctors think they're all so smart. And yet he's like, hey, and see, you know what's weird is nobody was admitting that. Because doctors, you know, they don't admit anything. They're never met when they're wrong. That's why they call it practicing medicine. But they're so arrogant, most of them, to where they're not going to admit they're wrong. And here women are dying left and right. One out of every six. Think about that. If you're a doctor and one out of every six of your women delivering a baby die, is somebody going to ask a question? 
This guy had the nerve and the courage to ask, why is this happening? And he looked and saw what they were doing. And he also read in the Bible where the Bible says, wash your hands. Here's what was happening on the doctor's side. They were, because they were studying medicine, they were looking at dead bodies and then going and delivering babies and not washing their hands. We're all like in shock because this is like common sense. This was not a common practice. Even in 1846, we're talking less than 200 years ago, this was not a common practice. So he insisted, everybody wash your hands. On the doctor's side, the, birth, the death rate went way down to equal with the others. But you know what? All through the process, they made fun of this man. They're like, oh, you keep your Bible yourself. This is science. You don't need the Bible. We need science. Washing your hands. Oh, you're telling us there's tiny little stuff living on our hands. Oh, he believes in tiny little invisible stuff on our hands that are killing the women. We all know it's because they gave birth or whatever. Why aren't the midwives? Well, just luck. We'll just what? And they would ignore the science. It's, it's crazy. In fact, he was so persecuted, he ended up in a mental hospital. And then he died of sepsis, the very thing that he was trying to prevent. It's it just, it just sad. The world, we, they claim science, but when the Bible clearly tells them, wash your hands, if you're sick, be quarantined. And we lived that last year, did we not? And yet the Bible said this thousands and thousands of years ago. Verse 14 says, because the Lord your God walks in the midst. Now, God wasn't literally walking in human flesh like he did in the garden or like he did in other things, what we call Christophanies. But it was a metaphor saying, hey, I'm, I am in your midst with my eyes and I want to see a clean place. I don't want to see mess everywhere. I want you to wash your hands. I want you, all the things you tell your kids before company comes over. Pick up your room, pick up the house, go wash your face, comb your hair, brush your teeth. All the things we do. God says, hey, give, treat me like an honored guest in your camp. He says, therefore, the camp must be holy, set apart, sacred, treated special in many ways. He said, you shall not give up a, a master to a slave. Now, if you've been here at all in the last few months, you hopefully you know by now, when, when atheists or, or skeptics say the Bible endorses slavery, they are not, they don't have a clue. When the Bible talks about slave, there's two words going on here. If you were in debt, and you were in a ton of debt, and you had no way out, you could go say, hey, Patrick, can I work for you for six years and pay this off? Sure, I need a little more help around the farm. Yeah, so I'll, you work for me, I'll give you the money to pay off your debt. And I was what was called a bond servant. I pledged to you, I will not leave for six years, and you're like, okay, and I'll pay you for six years, I'll give you room and board. In fact, it was such a good arrangement in many cases that at the end of the six years, seventh year on the Jubilee thing, they would say, you know what, I don't want to go, can I stay? I'm, I love being here, sure. And they would put a wooden peg in his ear so everybody knew this guy was, was his bond servant. That's one type of slave. It had nothing to do with the Western slave trade of colonialism, which was brutal and horrible and a blight on our history and a blight on the history of all Western civilization. The two are not the same. So don't take a 21st century word and stick it back into a Bible that's thousands of years old. Okay? It's very clear. The Bible says if somebody, let's say a guy, a slave, escaped from the, 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 um, the Jebusites, and he comes running down, he's like, where did you come from, bro? And you say, man, I just escaped. I was a slave over there. Well, hey, we're not telling anybody. Come on to my house. I will feed you. You got a place to stay. Does the Bible embrace slavery if you're assisting runaway slaves? No, this was the other type of slave. This is the one that he was in a brutal situation and you help him escape. You don't return him for the master. Why would anybody want to return for the master? Isn't there a reward? 
and you say, I don't care if there's a $500 reward, you're not getting it. In fact, you're going to spend $500 feeding this guy and wiping the wounds off his back where he's been beaten. And you're going to take him and his whole family in if you have to and feed him until they can get on their, own fe- on their own feet. In fact, watch this. In fact, Deuteronomy 24 forbids stealing people to make them slaves. What was the whole colonial thing? Stealing slaves from Africa and other parts of the world to sell them. The Bible forbids that right there in black and white. Any atheist who says to you the Bible endorses slavery either is totally stupid or they're lying because they know the truth. If they would just do a little Google search, what's the difference between slavery in the Bible and slavery in, in a colonial history? You can find a million articles telling you what I'm telling you right now, but they ignore the truth because it doesn't fit their agenda. They don't want you to believe in God. And that's a whole other message. Um, if you're found stealing someone from his brother or the people, and if he treats them as a slave or he sells them, then that person shall die. Death penalty for slave stealing. Death penalty. Does the Bible not take it seriously? He says, so you'll purge this evil from your midst. What does God think of that kind of slave trading? It's, a, it deserves, it's an evil that deserves the death penalty. In fact, this escaped slave, guess what? He's going to dwell with you. He's going to live with you. Dwell means live, like feed them, clothe them, give them a place to stay in your midst and a place that he shall choose. And when he's ready to get a job and go out, he gets to pick where he lives. Think about that. He gets to do one better than you got to do. Oh, Judah, live here. Benjamin, live here. Uh, Manasseh, live here. Slave, live wherever you want. You've been a slave too long. You're free to pick whatever tribe you want to live in, wherever you want, and whatever town you want to choose. None of, these, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Again, weird thing. Why would you have to tell your kids that? Because it was all around them. People that were mutilating their bodies to become pro, full-time prostitutes in, in the, uh, in, in the, amongst the pagan gods. And it says, not only that, but of the sons. So that's how bizarre this was, that they were abusing. Homosexuality was a big problem in here as well. And it says, you shall not bring the fee of a prostitute. So the Bible says if you make some money, what should you do with one-tenth of it? You tithe. But if you're a prostitute and you just made some money, you don't tithe off. God says, I don't want your money. <laughs> if you're making money as a prostitute, you just keep that money. In fact, you just need to stop doing that. I don't want it. And so there's all kinds of, in fact, it says, or the wages of a dog. Again, you have to understand the context here. It just, previous verse just said your daughter or your son. Boy prostitutes were called dogs. And you can get into all kinds of reasons why that was. I won't get into that. I've already embarrassed myself enough. Okay, into the house, Lord. You don't bring that money made from evil ways. Both of these are an abomination to the Lord. God says, you don't do these things. I don't want your money. It's not about the money. In fact, if a pastor talks about giving to the Lord, God doesn't need your money. Giving is good for you. And guess what? Guess where the money goes? It doesn't go to God. We don't put it, we don't Venmo it to, to the kingdom of God up in heaven. We give it to other people. We give it to missionaries. We give it to the poor. We give it to to widows. We spread the money out. So we say we give it to God. We give it to those in need. Proverbs 15, 8 says, the sacrifice or the offering of the wicked is an abomination. God says, I don't want your sacrifice. And you know what? It may be good. It's great that you guys give to God. You're a very generous church. We don't talk about giving much at all. But let me tell you something. If you are giving to God because you know you're sinning over here and you think the two are going to balance each out, just keep it. And I mean that honestly. I don't care if our, our offerings tank. If you're not living for God and you think that somehow you're going to appease God, that he's going to forgive this sin over here because you give money over here, it doesn't work that way. You need to confess this sin and then give God what's right. But until then, until you get right, don't even worry about it. It's an abomination to God. Remember the movie The Godfather? 
I remember watching it as a little kid. I don't know why my parents would let me watch that, but they let me do a lot of things I shouldn't have done. But it's funny that the mafia family was killing people. And then they'd go to church and confess their sins and give a big offering. And the priest is like, great, keep giving your money. Keep giving your money. I'll give, yes, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. So you shall not charge interest. In other words, people were taking advantage of each other. If you drive into a poor side of town, anywhere in Houston or anywhere in America, you will see altogether pawn shops, car title loans, tattoo parlors, CBD, all these things that take advantage of the poor. They all run together. And it's these people taking advantage of the poor. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll loan you a thousand bucks. Give me the title of your car. And the interest is 28%. And guess what? Those people can't afford to pay it back. I'm like, yep, got me a car. And they're just abusing the poor because they're poor. Israel said, the law in Israel was you can't do that. You got a brother that's really hard up and he's, he's suffering. You either give it to him or you loan it to him with no interest. No interest at all. Now, you can charge interest to foreigners because that's business. But with family, you don't do that. Business is business, but you separate the two. So then as we have Galatians 6 in the New Testament says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to how many people? Everyone, but especially to those of the household of faith. Who is the household of faith? Look around. This is your family. This is your church family. We're the household of faith. You take care of one another. And you guys do a phenomenal job of that. I can't tell you how many times in Revolution Church where somebody was hurting, and next thing you know, several people, I don't even have to announce it, several people get together, and next thing you know, that person's got 900 bucks to pay off some bills. You know, and it just, you're taking care of one another. You're doing a great job with that. That's the kind of things that the New Testament wants us to do to be the body of Christ. The, the passage here in Deuteronomy 23 goes on to say, if you make a vow, it didn't say make vows. Did you see that? What's the very first word? If, if you've done it, here's what you should do. How much of, the, of, of, of Deuteronomy is damage control? Like if a man has two wives, it didn't say go out and get two wives. That's double trouble. You don't need to do that. But it says if you've made that mistake, here's what you do. And the Bible says, and if a man wants to divorce his wife, it doesn't say go get a divorce. It's saying if you're going to go ahead and do it anyway, here's the regulations. So much of the unusual stuff we read in the Bible is damage control because we're, we're stubborn people. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require of you. In other words, you make a promise, God's going to hold you to it. So, but if you refrain from vowing, which is probably what it's suggesting here, you will not be guilty of sin. Matthew 5, Jesus speaks about this. He says, you know what? Just say yes or no. Don't say, oh, I'm going to do this. I swear to God. You know, or I'm going to do this. I'll put my hand on the Bible. I promise. I promise I'll be there. You know, or God strike me dead. Stop saying all that stuff. That's superstitious. If you say yes, do what you said you're going to do. If you say no, don't do it. Don't make all these promises to God. Yet people have done it all the time. Oh, God, if you get me out of the situation, I promise I'll go to church every Sunday. Yeah, right. We saw how that one worked out. Verse 24 says, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat a fill of your grapes. Look at that. He's, you need to be generous to your neighbors. When you're harvesting or whatever, realize if your neighbor's, he's been traveling, walking a long way, and he's hungry, and he, he didn't pack a lunch or something like that, and he stops in your vineyard and starts eating some grapes, you don't say, hey, get out of my here. Get out of my yard. You say, hey, you're my neighbor. Help yourself. In fact, it goes on and says, you know, you can take some of the standing grain. In other words, you, if he's been harvesting, cutting it down, he's got bundles over here. Don't touch the bundles. He worked hard to get that stuff. You can get what ha what's still standing, or what else can they get? 
what's called the gleanings. That what's already, like if they're harvesting and they drop some, they're forbidden to turn around and go back and pick it up. Because who was that for? The widows and the orphans or any of your neighbors that are passing through. See the generosity that's built into this? Now some will point to this very foolishly and say, oh, there's socialism. This is not socialism at all, okay? This, this is saying that we do need to have built into whatever we have to, be, to look out for other people. So what, what would is the, what's the equivalent of your fields today? None of you have vineyards, I don't think. None of you have wheat fields, but you all have bank accounts. And let me tell you something that's super wise to do. Have a cushion in there of your own little benevolence fund. That if somebody needs something, you've already got it. You, can, you can't be like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have anything. If you set aside, save up for your retirement, yes. Save up for your kid's college, yes. Save up for Christmas, yes. But save up for someone in need that God may send to your path. Now, be, be wise about that. We've had long discussions about that. Don't just throw it to your brother who's addicted to crack and ask you for money every other month. Okay, we're not talking about that. You need to have discernment in that situation. But definitely put into that. So let's just review this chapter, this awkward chapter, okay? First of all, it talks about excluding people from uh, citizens and why. It talks about a curse that's turned into a blessing. It talks about loving your neighbors enough to set aside for them. It talks about keeping the camp clean. It talks about assisting a runaway slave. It talks about don't involve a family member in pagan practices, your sons or your daughters. Help your brother. Don't abuse him by charging interest in other ways that you can abuse him. Make vows. Don't make vows, but if you do, follow through and then share what you have. Be willing to share what you have. If we go back to the, the second one, a curse turned into a blessing. This kind of turns the whole thing, the theme of everything in this passage right here. Look at the genealogy of Jesus. I, again, it's very small print. I don't expect you to read it. I want you to just kind of see the colored parts here. This is the genealogy of Jesus. You've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see that phrase over and over again. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as if that's something to brag about. I am the God of the three stooges. That's basically what he's saying. Abraham, who lied not once but twice about who Sarah was. Oh, uh, uh, she's my sister. Yeah, you go ahead and mess with her if you want. Don't, don't kill me, please. Okay, Isaac, who did the exact same thing his dad did, who tricked his brother, all, all, all these different things. I'm sorry, Esau, uh, um, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob, the one who tricked his brother. You got three stooges here, and God says, you know what? I can work with anything. That's what he's saying here. And if you think you've messed up your life and God can never use you, look at these three clowns, okay? That's what it's talking about. Yeah, they did some good things, but they did more stupid things. Jacob especially. Jacob was such a stubborn knucklehead. And God says, yeah, I'm his God too. In fact, I formed the greatest nation on the earth, my chosen people, that gave you the Messiah out of these knuckleheads, okay? And then look at this. He gives the genealogy. This, is, this, was, the, this was the sacred genealogy that led up to what gave us the Messiah, and in there is Tamar in purple, who was of a forbidden union, incest, and yet I used her. And then I've got Boaz, the father, Obed, of Ruth, a Moabitess. Remember I said they're excluded, but I brought her in after the 10th generation, just like I promised. And guess what? Great-great-grandmother of Jesus. In fact, she gave birth. She, her great-grandson was David. And uh, more greats in there than I just gave you. But anyway, David, look at David. What a loser. Steals a man's wife and has him murdered. Goodness gracious. And yet this is where our Messiah came from. Because God says, I can take cursed things and turn them into a blessing. 
Think of the brokenness of your life. What, what keeps you up at night or what, what in your past makes you think, gosh, I'm such a bonehead. I can't believe I did that. And maybe it was even 14 years ago and it's still bothering you today. For, stop regretting it. God uses your broken pieces to make you who you are today. Stop regretting it. Stop beating yourself up, okay? And so you, it said, and then Joseph, the husband of Mary. Notice it didn't say father of Jesus because he wasn't. Joseph and Mary, the, the young couple that everybody said, oh, huh, we know what they were doing before they got married. We know why they had to get married. And even when Jesus was 30-something years old, people said, oh, well, we know who you are, the son of the carpenter. Yeah, we know how that story went. That Mary had a bad reputation her whole life, and yet God used her. She didn't deserve that reputation like some of the others may have. And that to whom Jesus was born, who is the Christ. God orchestrated history right down from the 10th generation to, to Ruth, to everybody who would be involved in the family line of Jesus. And you say, what, is that, what does this matter? Because this traces back to King David. Then the prophecy was someone who was the ancestor of David would be king because that's the way it works. So Romans 3.22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You say, Gary, I'm not righteous. I'm not good enough to get to heaven. Exactly. So God says, I've got a ton of righteousness. Let me give mine to you. And how do you get it? By faith, if you believe in Jesus. And it says, watch this, for there's no distinction. There's no longer Moabite, Ammonite, Egyptian, or any of that stuff. Anybody, eunuch, not eunuch, whatever, you can all get saved. You can all come to me by faith. Why? Because all have sinned. We're all losers. We're all, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we are all justified by his grace as a gift, as a gift. If you're not saved today, you, this is the one word you have to please get in your mind and your heart. It's a gift. If I came to you and said, hey, I want you to have this. You say, oh, great. Here, let me, let me give you some money. Uh, it, it's a gift. If I came to you and said, hey, thanks for mowing my lawn. I don't have any cash, but here's, here's this. That's not a gift. That's, that's payment. The other one was a purchase. Or if I said, hey, I want you to have this, but you better come to church every single Sunday or I'm going to take it back. That's not a gift. That's an obligation. God says, hey, I gave you my son. What do you have to do to make it, him your own? You simply receive it. And that's it. And have you ever given someone a gift and then later they, they treat you like dirt? Is the gift still theirs? It is. And you know what? God gave his only son knowing people would not be thankful as they should. And none of us are, right? But we receive that as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation. Big word for me, the covering, or the one who stood in the way, the one who took the bullet for you by his blood, his death on the cross, received by what? By faith. You say, Gary, what do I have to do to be saved? It's not what you do, it's what he's done. You put your faith in what he's done. You accept that as your only means of salvation. I'd like to encourage everybody to do something amazing, and that's talk to God. I want you to pray right now. If you would, just, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just to knock out any distractions. If you don't know Jesus today, today could be your day to accept him by faith. You say, Gary, there's so many things in the Bible I don't understand. Little children don't understand everything, but they trust their father doesn't mean there's not an explanation, but until you can understand, you still trust as a child does. So with childlike faith, would you accept Christ today?
you could pray a prayer like this. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to die in my place for all the bad things I've done, for all the sins that I've committed, for the rebellion that was in my heart. Lord, I trust you as my Lord and as my Savior. I give you my life. I give you everything. I want to follow you. I truly believe you died on that cross for me, that you were literally buried and you literally rose again on the third day, victorious, so that I could live forever with you. I make you the Lord of my life, and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for dying for my sins in Jesus' name. And if, you've, if you prayed that prayer this morning, I, I'd love to hear from you. I want to help you take your next baby steps as a new follower of Jesus Christ. So there's my cell phone number. You can call me or text me anytime. In just a few minutes, we're going to do question and answer. If you have a question about anything I taught on this morning, question about anything in the Bible, what's happening in the news, whatever you want to do, feel free to ask me a questionnaire. And Sophia's going to help me in just a couple minutes with that. Um, if this is your first time here this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Let's give our guests a hand for being here this morning. Um, we have a, a gift for you at the table back there. So fill out one of those connect cards at the table there, and we want to give you a gift for being here today. Um, you can also give to our church via uh, Venmo at Revolution Church HTX, and uh, just give right there. If you can give direct, make it easy. Um, we have a saying around here at Revolution Church that everybody serves. And so if you're somewhat new to Revolution Church, but you haven't found your place of ministry, we want you to use the gifts and the talents that God has given you for his glory. Here's a few examples, but it doesn't have to be limited to this list. Uh, feel free to text me and we'll get you connected with that. Um, we're still asking for more families to step up and do one youth group activity this year, okay? June is covered because we're going to camp next week, but if someone want, we need someone to take July and August. I think we have September covered. If you want to take another act activity, you can do anything. We'll, we'll, if you don't have an idea, but I can help you with one. Um, God is really blessing our life groups. We want to increase more. But for right now, for the summer, we got three going on. Uh, one in Pearland, one in, um, I'm blanking out here, Texas City, and then one in Santa Fe. That's Santa Fe. Was, uh, of course, I forget Santa Fe. I kind of overlook that all the time, don't we? Um, anyway, so if you want information about life groups, text me on that. Next week, we're going to celebrate Father's Day, and we'll have a gift and, uh, and we'll have some great dad jokes for you as well. All right, Sophia, come on up here, help me out. <clears throat> and feel free to, you can even raise your hand if you want to uh, do that instead of um, texting it. There we go. Okay. Um, why can't you... Let me see if it's on. It's on. about this one? Either one? There we go. Okay. Why can't you put your brother in debt? Um, this was talking about abusive debt, but some people think it was talking about all debt with interest. So you can, it just said you can't, it says you can't do it with interest. So you can put your brother in debt, but if you loan him $1,000, he doesn't have to pay back $1,248 because of the interest. He pays back only what he borrowed. So you can put them in debt, you just can't charge interest. Uh, in Proverbs, you'll see the word usury, if, especially if you're reading King James Bible, that's what it's talking about. It's, ta it's talking about exorbitant interest. Okay. When God led the people of Israel into the promised land, God devoted their enemies to destruction. In Psalm 139, 21, and 22, the author proclaims hatred for the enemies of God. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. 
How do we reconcile this with Matthew 5, 43 through 45? Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so um, number one, who wrote the Psalms? Most of them was written by who? David. And there's so many things in the Psalms where David just is pouring out his feelings. It doesn't mean they're right. He's like, God, you have abandoned me. Well, is that true? Did God abandon him? No, but that's how he feels. So one part of it is you could look at it this way. He's saying, I hate these people. And of course, Jesus says, no, stop doing that. But there's also, realize there's two different types of hatred. Let's say your son grows up and he gets strung out on crack and he starts stealing from you and he starts doing all kinds of things. And you say to him, man, I have to hate what you have become. Is there anything wrong with that? No. You love him and yet you hate him at the same time. Not just his behavior. You hate who he has become. And I wish you'd just go back to being the young, innocent man you were who loved Jesus. Now you've become this evil person who's stealing and lying and, and scheming. I hate that what these drugs have done to you and what they've made you become. There's no, there's no contradiction there. I mean, you, you've felt those same things as parents or grandparents. You've seen it in friends. And for God to say, even there's times that God says, I hate certain things or certain people. It means what sin has done to them and what they're doing and them in a sinful state. So it, there's no contradiction there. In fact, the opposite of love is not hate. It's what? It's apathy. It's like, I don't care. Do what you want in your life. I don't care. It doesn't faze me. Imagine having those feelings towards your son or daughter who's just ruining their life. And you're like, I don't care. Whatever. That's the true um, detest, detestable thing that it, that, where you just don't even really care about them. You hate what they're doing and who they've become because you love them. In fact, with some of your kids, some of your most rebellious kids, probably you love them more than the others because they're getting so much attention because of what they're going through. You're spending so much time on them because you love them, but you're hating what they are becoming. All right, I think that's, I, I, that, that's the only way we can reconcile um, God hating certain people but yet loving them because for God so loved the world that he even died for those that he hated what they were becoming. That's a paraphrase of John 3.16. Some Christians believe that if a same-sex attracted person sincerely becomes a Christian, that they will be fully delivered of experienced same-sex attraction, that they will automatically become heterosexual if they sincerely seek God. Does the Bible support this view? That's a great question. Um, and I've been reading a lot about this. And this is, this is a discussion amongst Christians. It's not a fight. But there's a lot of Christians saying, okay, we are all conservative Christians, Christians who believe the Bible, we're all against homosexuality. We all want to see those people get saved, and some of them are saved. The question is, when they get saved, should those feelings go away, either immediately or over time? Or is it actually possible for someone to be walking with Jesus and have that be a struggle every single day? I used to be in this camp where God's going to heal you of those desires, but then I realized that's inconsistent because I know people who, before they got saved, were alcoholics. And now they've been saved for 20 years, and they still, every day, is like, I'm not going there. I'm not drinking that. Don't tempt me with that beer. Why is it even a temptation? Oh, God took away. Some people, God took away the desires just like that. And they never wanted another drink. They could care less. And for some people, every day, God, please give me the grace not to drink again today. And I believe there's some homosexuals who have gotten saved. And every single day, they're like, God, please just help me be celibate for you. Help me just love you. If you change my affections, great. But until you do, I'm just going to trust you. Uh, a great pastor in England named Sam Albury, 
He knew when he was 17, he just didn't have normal affections. And he doesn't, um, he doesn't justify and say, that's the way God made me. He, when he became, and then he became a Christian, and he had no clue. He said, I wonder what God thinks of my homosexuality. He had no clue. He started studying the Bible. He's like, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. I'm having a desire that is not right. And so I'm going to ask God to take him away, ask him to take him away. He never did. He kept growing in Christ, growing in Christ. He became a pastor. And to this day, he's a celibate pastor. And he's like, if I can be celibate for my lifetime to experience joy in heaven for the rest of eternity, I'll do it. And he says, that's my cross to carry. And there, there's, and so there isn't a probably a normal married man in this room that doesn't get, have to deal with your eyes and deal with your thoughts. Does that mean you're abnormal? No. It means you have to deal, struggle with it every day. So if someone's homosexual, they may have to deal with that struggle every day. But again, can God heal it? Yes. I also, for every one of Sam Alberry's I know, there's also someone who God has taken away those desires and are in a heterosexual marriage and have children and are doing great. Okay? So again, just do the parallel with the alcoholism or the drugs. Some people, God takes away like that. Some people, he said, where Paul's prayed, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. He prayed three times, God take it away. And God said, no, no, I'm not taking it away. My grace is sufficient. For me. You're going to learn every day to lean on my grace to deal with that problem. So um, that's all the more reason we need to pray for people in those situations, no matter what their, what their inclinations are, not whether it be sexual or whether it be people who deal with greed or people who deal with gossip or whatever it may be. That's all. Any other questions? All right, great. Um, Daniel, come on up. Where Daniel go? There we go. Come on up. We're going to stand, and he's going to lead us in one song going out. Again, give Daniel a hand for leading worship for us. <clears throat>